Hi, podcast listeners. Francoise here. We've got some exciting news to share. We've just reached the 10,000 download mark on the 3D Insights podcast. We couldn't have done it without you, and we'd like to thank you all for being such a great audience. From July 11th to the 13th, we'll be recording live at the Moscone Center as the official podcast of Semicon West. So please stop by the Media Hub to say hello and pick up an Are You Listening sticker. We're also offering sponsorship opportunities to help you get your company's message out to the microelectronics industry. For details, drop me a line. My email link is in the show notes. And now on to this week's episode from ECTC 2023. Hi there, I'm Francoise Von Trapp, and this is the 3D Insights Podcast. Hi everyone, this week we are coming to you from ECTC 2023 in Orlando, Florida, and this year's keynote speaker is Mike Manfra from Purdue University. He spoke on unlocking the potential of quantum computers challenges and opportunities in electronic devices, interconnects, and packaging. And he's here with me now to talk about some of the key takeaways of his talk. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. First, before we dive in, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at Purdue? Okay, sure. I'm a professor of physics, and uh, I'm also in the Department of uh, Electrical Engineering and Materials Engineering, so I have several appointments at Purdue. I'm by training a, a condensed matter experimentalist, that means I worry about electrons flowing around in uh, small circuits made of gallium arsenide or silicon or, or other types of uh, semiconductor materials. Over the years, uh, because of the overlap of some of the work I do as a physicist with quantum computing, I have been researching and uh, contributing to the development of uh, qubit technologies. In addition to being a professor at Purdue, I am the scientific director of uh, Microsoft Quantum Lab in West Lafayette. So duties are both academic and, and trying to help develop the uh, Microsoft's approach to quantum computing. Okay, so quantum computing is a real enigma for a lot of us in this industry. We hear about it a lot. I don't think many of us really know what it is. Can you explain just kind of briefly and on a high level what quantum computing is and why we need it? There are certain types of calculations or computations that we would like to do um, that become essentially intractable on classical hardware. And what that means is uh, with all the compute power we have right now, even in... Uh, you know, running that for 10,000 years, there are certain things we are simply not able to calculate. And this is, it's, uh, there's a class of problems and computer scientists know how to classify these problems. Now it turns out that uh, harnessing the power of quantum mechanics, uh, instead of just representing information by zeros and ones as we do in classical hardware, but allowing information to be stored in a superposition of zeros and ones, that's at the essence of, of uh, quantum mechanics, allows certain class of cl um, calculations to be done much more efficiently. And the, you know, the, some of the areas that, uh, where this has promise is in uh, quantum chemistry, material science, okay. trying to predict properties of materials 
uh, that are technologically relevant and useful. Okay. So essentially, do the qubits replace the transistors? Yeah, you can think of it that way. Uh, we're basically the the information stored in the, the state of uh, on or off state of a transistor as a zero or one. Uh, the qubit is capable of being a, uh, what we call in quantum mechanics, a linear combination of the zeros and ones. And then the addition of many qubits, we can build larger superpositions. And that allows, as I said, certain calculations to be done uh, much more efficiently than they could be done otherwise. You talked about chemical industry and material science can benefit from that. Is this because there are things that they need to do that can't be done with classical computing? Or it's just not a very efficient uh, process. Uh, Historically, companies would sort through millions and millions of different uh, candidate materials in uh, sort of a rough, let's see what we can find approach with certain desirable properties in mind, but uh, they didn't have necessarily the correct predictive power to go out and choose which combinations of materials or should be put together in terms of compounds to effectively uh, have the result that they'd want, say, fertilization or um, perhaps uh, drug discovery. Uh, we, We take it out of this sort of trial and error mode and try to make it more predictive, and that's a potential uh, for quantum computers. So I think I've understood that that one of the differences between classical and quantum is that classical is linear. Talking very roughly uh, here, quantum takes advantage of some of the parallelism that's available to us when we consider information stored in quantum states rather than uh, just discrete zeros and, and ones uh, for, uh, that we have on our classical hardware. And that's, a, that's a rough uh, analogy, but it, it does have a grain of truth. In your talk, you were addressing the ECTC community. Um, mm-hmm. What did they need to know when they're developing their future technologies to support quantum? Well, I think first and foremost is that any quantum hardware always has uh, many of the same issues that classical hardware does. There will always be a quantum classical interface, packaging, uh, thermal management, interconnects are, as we try to scale quantum technology, are a tremendous engineering challenge. Now, the, the solutions need to be tailored to the specific quantum uh, computing platform, but they're, in essence, not different from what the community already knows and where their expertise is. Uh, we you know, want to have efficient CMOS c- control and, and readout and uh, how to have that integrated into with a quantum plane where the qubits actually reside and um, how to handle the uh, requirements that Many of the quantum devices need to be operating at cryogenic temperatures, and so that the packaging and thermal management uh, will have to uh, evolve in order to have any chance of doing that at scale. I think that's an important thing to keep in mind for this community, that uh, quantum computing will not advance unless concomitantly there's uh, advances in uh, packaging, interconnects, thermal management, 
that allow us to go from the qubits that uh, potentially reside at cryogenic temperatures out to the uh, ambient conditions of the real world where we are all sitting at our monitors and, and trying to interact with these quantum devices. So this is a tremendous engineering challenge and a, a great opportunity for the community here to become more involved and uh, have real contributions to the quantum computing community, which out of of historical reasons has largely been driven by uh, physicists or uh, ex-physicists and uh, people like myself, but we don't necessarily have all the skill sets necessary to develop it all the way to a a fully functional machine at scale. So currently quantum computing needs a sp- the cold environment? Solid-state implementations certainly do. Now, there are uh, trapped ions that work at room temperature. It's a completely different platform, but superconducting technology, semiconductor technology, the hybrid superconductor, semiconductor systems that I work on, they all need to be at uh, uh, low temperatures, say liquid helium temperatures. So the likelihood that this could be used in, for instance, a consumer application or a home computer is not the target? Not in the next uh, several years, I would say. I think these quantum computers, especially the early uh, versions of quantum computers, are highly specialized machines, really targeted at a a somewhat restricted class of problems. And so there'll there'll be a large investment associated with uh, this kind of hardware, and there'll be customers, industrial customers, who really need the technology. Quantum technology is not going to be in your smartphone in the next 10 years. Uh, but that, you know, that uh, depends on what kind of uh, perspective you take. Uh, maybe not in the next 10 years, but uh, who knows down the road. And maybe those solutions might lie in the packaging space. and have- Yeah, exactly, and, and, and development of new materials and packaging that allow... Uh, quantum systems to operate at higher temperature. The biggest issue is that uh, the reason we have to be cold is because the energy scales for these quantum processes tend to be very low at the moment. But if new materials are developed that can uh, sustain higher temperature operation, then of course things change. And that's the evolution of uh, technology over the next 30 years, what we'll see. And we never think that the qubit we have of today is the ultimate perfect qubit. It's far from it. And companies and academic groups will continue to try to innovate to uh, build more, more robust technology. And part of being more robust is the ability to operate at higher temperatures. So it's kind of like if you look at the history of the computer itself, we've gone from the power of computing in a room down to, you know, nobody ever thought that the power the of a room could be yeah. in your smartphone. That's right. That's so, so if you compared it to the original uh, uh, early digital computers of the late 40s and, and 50s, uh, certainly potential, I don't believe ever people at the time were thinking of your iPhone. Right. And uh, that's sort of the beauty that technology and science develops and we think of new applications and, and new uses. So I would be presumptuous to say nothing. it's, it's going to look exactly the same in 30 years as it does to me sitting right. here. Exactly. Um, so what would you say that you need, not per, you need as 
you know, someone who's doing quantum computing research or has ideas about where we can take this, what do you need from the advanced packaging community to bring quantum computing to the masses? My area of expertise is, is fairly narrow. So I can speak of the technologies that, that I'm familiar with and work on. Um, these issues of interfacing heterogeneous materials, packaging them in compact, uh, thermally efficient modules is something that is, I would say, critical to the near-term development of more powerful quantum machine. That really takes that level of integration, takes an industrial-scale approach. It can't be just academics um, like myself puttering around in the lab. There have to be fully integrated uh, plans and for how we will handle thermal management, how to have control electronics very close to what I call the quantum plane. And so for a, a lot of that technology, that means heterogeneous integration. How do we put these things together at some reasonable scale? And that r really uh, is where I think this the community uh, here can contribute. I mean, it's a challenge for uh, people like myself who start out thinking at the 1 to 10 qubit level where you can basically wire things up on your own to think of a 1,000, 10,000, 100,000, a million, which is going to be needed to do anything of practical import. You know, if we want to uh, d design uh, uh, fertilizer, uh, we're, we're going to need large numbers of qubits. That's really where uh, the development and packaging in interconnect technology has to evolve with the qubit technology. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. When it comes to influencer marketing, there's a podcast that covers it all that you will want to add to your playlist. The Influence Factor by the Influencer Marketing Factory. They talk about influencer marketing, social media, the creator economy, social commerce, and much, much more. They cover all aspects, including the creator economy, social commerce, the latest trends, the metaverse, TikTok trends, and that's just the beginning. The Influence Factor by the Influencer Marketing Factory. Add the podcast to your playlist right now. Well, thank you so much for your time today. No problem. Thank Excellent you. Talk. Oh, thank you very much. So since the Chips and Science Act was signed into law in August of 2022, it's been a really hot topic for the entire microelectronics industry. Where's the money coming from? How's the money going to be allocated? There's $39 billion for incentive programs. There's $11 billion for four different areas of R&D. ECTC 2023 featured two back-to-back -back sessions with speakers from government, such as NIST and DARPA, academia, and industry, to update the attendees on the status of the CHIPS Act rollout. So joining me on the podcast to try and demystify some of this are Dick Audie of QP Technologies and Josh Dillon from Marvell. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, Dick, you've been on the podcast several times talking a lot about this. And Josh, this is the first time we had you here. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Can you um, just give us a little background on your role at Marvell? So I'm in our custom silicon division. And then my primary role is with Marvell Government Solutions. Okay. So we're 
highly focused on the capability in the U.S. with advanced packaging. It's sort of my specific focus. So we're very excited about some of the uh, government announcements and the uh, activity around that. Can you just remind me what Marvell does? Marvell is everything data. So okay. data compute, data storage, data transfer, switches, data centers, AI, ML. And so we're looking to provide that capability to the government as well through our Marvell Government Solutions um, okay. division. And you develop devices for these? We are a product company. Okay. So we uh, provide a, a solution to our customers for those um, specific applications. Okay. So, and you're further down the food chain a little bit than QP was doing the assembly test and packaging. Correct. For, yes. for instance, would Marvell be a customer of QP? They're more likely to be a customer of our customer. Okay. That our customers buy materials, parts, wafers, dye from Marvell. They send them to us. We assemble. Okay. We're, we have factories and, uh, and provide assembly services. And all of your operations are onshore. Onshore, for QP. correct. Okay. Yes. And just to clarify, uh, Dick Audi is the CEO of QP Technologies. Well, I'm a, formerly I'm the CEO of Promax Industries, okay. which has two divisions, QP Technologies, and which doesn't have a CEO. I see. Okay. And and Pro, and our Promax, which is in Santa Clara, so we got two factories: QPT and San and Escondido, Promax and Santa Clara. Okay. So, I went to both sessions yesterday, and I still did not get a sense of what is happening with this CHIPS Act rollout. They talked about centers of excellence. They talked about certain technical capabilities that we need to bring on shore. Can you guys provide some of the key takeaways from yesterday's discussions? What I've seen from this rollout, and I commend our government team for, is they've actually been in a, uh, a listening mode. They've solicited a lot of inputs. There's a lot of interested parties, um, a lot of perspectives on sort of the best way to, to close this gap and provide this capability domestically. You know, I still see a fair amount of that. And, and you know, even Robert, who's sitting right next to me, was taking notes, mm-hmm. um, the entire panel. Sort of the flip side to that is that that openness leads a little bit of interpretation about the direction that it's going right. to go, right? There isn't a clear mandate, and they're actually soliciting proposals at this time. Proposals for allocating those funds? Yeah, exactly. For these uh, ME Commons is another one that they're um, looking to establish for those those center of excellences around the country. So that that was one of the key takeaways for me yesterday is that the, that there's still um, opportunity to for us as an industry to define the best way for that. Okay. To, okay. To happen. Now, Dick, you were talking about um, as a company who would potentially benefit from some of the um, funding that the government could provide one-third of the funding. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, yes. There's information from the government that the government will provide no more than one-third of the total investment. Okay. And that's kind of soft. It's not real well stated anywhere that I've really seen, although there there's breakdowns of how the different funds come in the form of grants, bank loans, guaranteed loans. Those are okay. kinds of the vehicles that they're using that in total add to 33%. And this would be in the case of you wanting to add onshore capacity? Yes. I view it as largely for both building facilities and developing processes uh, to provide assembly services. That's how I tend to view it, given my approach to all of this. Yeah. 
Okay. And Josh, you were just talking about a gap. Um, what do you mean by that? Uh, capability gap in delivering a, a, a product that, you know, there are um, customer needs that mm-hmm. are preferred to be North America supplied. Mm-hmm. The, the, the government, um, you know, has specific needs that aren't uh, able to be satisfied today in that capability. There, I think there are niche opportunities. You know, I think there are, uh, but in terms of uh, some of the high volume product needs and the advanced packaging capabilities specifically that's required mm-hmm. um, isn't, isn't available today. So that's the gap. I get the sense that from yesterday's conversation that there is some skepticism on whether it's feasible or whether companies will pull advanced packaging back on shore if, have, if they had the opportunity. Um, what do you think about that? Well, the, the reality is, is that there's some advanced packaging going on now onshore. There's not as much as you people would like. The capability is not building fast enough to be able to keep up with, with what the likely demand is going to be. Uh, and the capabilities where we're, we're slow to build uh, is at several levels. Uh, first, there's the source of materials, interposers. We, ha- we are weak onshore in building interposers of all classes, organic, silicon, or potentially glass. In some ways, we're almost as well off in glass as we are in the others. And realistically, if we're going to compete in advanced packaging, we need these advanced interposer class substrates. Uh, There's a a second class of interconnect for advanced packaging, what I might loosely call the RDL approach, where uh, the interconnect structure is built on on a series of dies that are locked down that you build interconnect on top of that. Uh, that's an, a, 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 an alternate process that has a lot of attractiveness for many applications. Workforce development was another big topic. Do we have the workforce? And that seems to be something that people can really grab onto yes. when it comes to solving an issue that needs to be solved. Um, so there was a lot of conversation about that. How have you been experiencing that situation in your own companies? Uh, we, we are able to find staff. Uh, it's not real easy to find people who know these technologies. Uh, we, we've been forcing, we've been around a while, we have a lot of experienced personnel. So what we are able to do is hire people right out of college with good backgrounds and then train them. Mm-hmm. And, and the backbone of our engineering staff in Santa Clara, for example, is a group of young engineers we hired over the last five to ten years and have largely develop knowledge about packaging technologies working with, within our facilities. Right. Well, it seems to be they learn the engineering in school and then they learn some of the packaging, they, packaging technologies right. they, within they, the companies. Yeah, they learn the fundamentals uh, in colleges and they learn the specifics sort of on the job, if you will. Yes. And how about at Marvell? So Marvell's a fabulous company. But you still need people to work there. Well, of course. <laughs> of course. But, you know, in terms of manufacturing capability in the U.S., I was encouraged to see the emphasis on workforce development. Again, Robert touched on that yesterday yeah. in his slides. Um, in a previous life, I worked in a fab, and that technician uh, role they talked about yesterday mm-hmm. is, is uh, what defines a, a world-class manufacturing operation. And so I was encouraged to see some discussion about that and the differentiation between PhDs mm-hmm. versus technicians and, mm-hmm. and the role that that plays in manufacturing capability in the U.S. So I, 
I'd like to continue to see that emphasis there. And the other thing we talked about um, yesterday was the opportunity with um, some of our um, veterans and that mm-hmm. uh, pipeline of, of uh, talent and the skill sets that drive a great manufacturing line, such as standards and discipline. You know, of course, this is a, a world-class um, uh, workforce opportunity that, that could potentially satisfy that need. Um, yeah, SEMI is actually working closely with veterans to establish a program there. So there's definitely been recognition of that. And I think even looking at two-year colleges, um, Robert mentioned that NIST is looking at working with not just universities for PhDs, but undergrad and even two-year programs to yeah, he knew every community college. Yeah, he knew Arizona, every community college. Ohio, he did. Yeah, I was I was impressed by that. What about vocational schools? You know, mm-hmm. kids coming out of high school with technical training because there's always that college education gap of being able to finance a college education. You know, how about some more on the job training, just basic technical skills that can be adapted and used in the fab environment. Mm-hmm or in the packaging environment. I'm sure there's all different levels that are needed. I, I agree. I agree. There, there's a, a an opportunity there, uh, something shy of a four or eight-year degree, mm-hmm. providing a clear career path. I think there was some of that discussion yesterday, too, from Subu uh, mm-hmm. about the mm-hmm. uh, industry and, and what the different career paths. And he also cited, the, I think, the Middlestone from, from Germany and their kind of Right, and how they sort of define those paths early early on, on right? Yeah. They start around four, age fourteen, starting to divide. Um, if you're going to go into a trade, if you're going to go into some sort of you know business school, or if you're going to be in a profession like you know physician engineer, so that's a lot how of pressure for a fourteen year old. Uh, but it, it's it seems it's not the decision well. isn't up to them. They're they're tested. Right, it's right. it's um it's a merit based system that we don't really have here. The last thing I wanted to mention, it was one of the questions from the attendees in the audience. It seemed that what they really wanted to get out of this was how do I apply for these funds? And I don't get the feeling that we're actually there yet. But one of the responses from the panel I found interesting was he said, submit a proposal and show us the supply chain ecosystem is all based in the United States. So that seems to be a requirement. Did I misinterpret that? Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow and monetize your podcast ready to get started click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today uh i think there are different opportunities i i I have also heard of guardrails on some of those um i think it's proposal specific and that you'd want to look through the details of each one to, Mm -hmm. to ensure that you are meeting the criteria Realistically, almost nothing can be done 100% with American sources today. Right. And uh, particularly in materials. Materials Mm -hmm. uh, are are largely moved to Japan. I think Japan is an okay source Mm -hmm. from what I've heard. It's going to take a decade to to redevelop 
U.S. sources, and it's going to be, it's very difficult to see how it can happen. I think, realistically, the objective is to break what I will call dependence on the Far East. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a little bit different. You can buy materials out of there, you can stockpile them, uh, and all that are, are all methodologies for ensuring availability, which is what the clear objective of this is. Yeah, maybe just to add to that, that I don't know if the overall objective is to be completely U.S. sourced. I think single sourcing at, at any point is a, is not good for, for the free market. Right. Right, so it's... it's uh, supply chain resiliency and mm-hmm. diversity and building up capabilities elsewhere. Um, and if there are specific steps that do need to be domestically sourced, it, we, we want to have that op- that availability. Yeah, so I think we need to wrap it up. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we're just kind of at the beginning, at the tip of this iceberg, yeah. and that this is going to be a topic of discussion for quite some time as we watch it unfold. Yeah. I would make the observation that if nothing else, the CHIPS Act has caused a very large amount of discussion and people working to figure out how to collaborate. There's actually a fairly large amount of benefit already without any money having been issued, simply from people talking to one another, learning one another's capabilities and beginning to put together relationships independent of the money. All right. Well, thanks, you guys. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank, thank you, you Francois. Okay. My next guest is Kim Yes from Brewer Science. Welcome to the podcast. Thank Kim. you for having me. It's so nice to be here. This is this the first time you've been on the podcast? Yes. Okay. I know we've had um, Kim mm-hmm. Arnold. Yes, um, and I think we even talked about um, maybe DEI. Then you're not only director of. I'm the executive director of our packaging solutions group. Okay. In addition to that huge role, right. you are on the ECTC committee. Yes. Um, this is my last year as uh, track chair for the materials and process. So I'm handing over the baton after this ECTC conference. This year. And then what will you be for ECTC? What I will do is I'll participate still in all the scoring and things associated with um, the wonderful things that ECTC does to put on this conference. And then um, I will, yeah, just kind of try to help out any other way I can. So anyhow, you were part of the organizing team that set up last night's DEI event, but it wasn't really a DEI event. It was diversifying our technical workforce to meet national needs, including the CHIPS Act initiative. And I attended it, and it was a really interesting session. Well, thank you very much. Um, We worked really hard at getting very qualified panelists to be able to answer the questions Mm -hmm. necessary um, for the industry, right? Because I, I think this is a big thing that's on everyone's mind, not only how do we recruit, but how do we retain our employees. Yeah, and it was really great to see that the CHIPS Act initiative is going to be addressing workforce development, and that kind of framed the conversation. We had um, a speaker, Courtney Power, from NextFlex, Yes, and she is in charge of their workforce development, and she brought up some really great points about how early we need to start to recruit, which is like fourth grade. Yes, absolutely. I think the quicker you can get the, the children excited about science and about the, the industry, the better it is. We do a lot of STEM research or support from Brewer Science, and we've realized that the kids are very engaged, even at the younger ages. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. We, we do just like community 
um, support and we have, you know, sessions for them to learn about different things. And, and uh, it's always a very good turnout. So what would you say were some of the key takeaways from last night's talk for people who didn't attend? So the biggest thing, I think, is to start early, mm -hmm. right? I, I think that's right. And, you know, a lot of people are talking about high school and that, but they've kind of already have the trajectory, I think. So they're even, like you said, backing it up into the, the lower grades. And um, I think the other thing that's really important um, that I took from last night is I think people are craving another pathway besides mm -hmm. just the college route. And I think it is so important for people to understand that the, the trades are vital. They're critical for the success of the industry itself, too. We need, yes, engineers, but we also need, you know, our technicians and, and the other workforce. And I, I think that's probably going to be a shorter pathway for immediate hires and things like that with retraining or, um, you know, having some sort of an associate program. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree with you. That was very much highlighted and really necessary because everybody's always thinking, well, I have to get a PhD or I have to get a master's and I have to be specialized in some area of um, electrical or, or chemical engineering. And that's just not true. If you want to develop new processes that may be true but the semiconductor industry is so huge and there are so many opportunities even outside of of stem roles they, they need business people they need marketing people they need you know the whole gamut of what you need to run a business yes yeah, so there was a real focus on opportunities around internships for instance I'm glad you brought that up because internship for Brewer Science is very important for our workforce. We're located in Rolla, Missouri, and we have the University of Science and Technology there in Rolla. And so we have the benefit of having some amazing talent that comes in. We do a lot of interns. We have a very high rate of uh, hiring those mm -hmm those right. interns, mm -hmm. right, for Brewer. And they're already introduced us. They understand the technology and the industry that we serve. And it really does help us. The way we look at interns is not just like a summer intern. So we have interns that are, you know, 365 days of the year. Well, they don't work weekends, right. but, you know, they, they actually are very um, entrenched in our programs mm -hmm. and things like that. So it's not like you bring somebody in, it takes you forever to train them, and then they turn around and leave. Right, exactly. Right. Because that is an investment, right? It is. is. It really is. A new hire. Any new hire is an investment. Right. And it's great that you've provided this path to enter into Brewer Science as an intern, and that then could become a job for you. We've been inviting our members to have their interns contribute essays about their experience to help promote the internship programs too. Oh, and, that's and, yeah. Amazing. And so yeah. Brewer has actually two years in a row contributed an essay. Mm -hmm. And I was really excited to see in one of the photos last year's intern essay. He's still there. He's not an intern anymore. That really made an impression on me just noticing that, hey, he's still there from last year. There was another topic that was brought up and it's it's about the retention piece how do you get talent but you have to work hard at retaining them right and how you retain them is by making them feel important and that they're contributing and that um, they're essential and so brewer science's philosophy is really 
everything that we do is possible because of the people, by mm -hmm. the technology, right? Mm -hmm. And we're doing it for the customer, for everybody's fulfillment. And what's critical about that is that you are able to focus on the people, give them the initiative, um, the freedom, things like that to be creative, to do their job. There's a high level of trust, right? And by doing and incorporating these things into your business model, I think it really does help with the retention piece mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sitting down and oh, talking to me about Oh, it was my pleasure. Today. It was fun. Uh, and let's do it again sometime. Awesome. Thank you All so right. much. Thanks. So my next guest is Shaw Feng Wong from Intel in Malaysia. He goes by SF. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for the invitations. You just were awarded the first ever 2023 IEEE EPS William Chen Distinguished Service Award. And it was awarded to you by Bill Chen himself. Yeah, I'm yeah. so lucky. You are so lucky. Yes. Yeah. So can you tell me what this award is about? By looking at the, the awards, right, in name after a service award, mm -hmm. um, I have been engaged in this society like more than 20 years uh -huh. um, when I was still a very young and junior engineer. And Bill actually was the one that came to Malaysia and helped us to set up the society in Malaysia. I see. So okay. I get inspired by him to continue to volunteer and that's why I'm here. So it is a volunteer position. Yep. So you have your regular day job at Intel. Yep. And then you're working to promote the EPS Society and run any events in Malaysia. What is your role with okay. the EPS? I used to be a former member. Then because okay. of my kind of like engagement and enthusiasm to this, they started to kind of like invite me to join the EXCO, the board for mm -hmm. EPS Malaysia. So I served multiple positions, even like from a secretariat to the vice chair. And lately, I think for about four to five years ago, I was the chair. Okay. Yeah. Then lately, I just stepped down and become like junior past chair. Okay. So why has this been important to you in your career? Growing young talent, especially in a very competitive and also um, in the industry in Malaysia, is uh, something that really inspired me. So that's why that I like to serve and also do a lot of this kind of technical volunteer job. So this is the reason why that I engaged for so long. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so how about how much time does this take out of your day or your week or month? Actually, I, I can't quantify that. Yeah. It's just part of our volunteer things. That sometimes in part of our work, you can just take like a, a few, maybe an, an hour during the lunch break and just do something like that or even during the weekend. Yeah. So you're you're committing some evenings and weekends to yes. this. Yep. And does Intel support your participation in the EPS? Yes, uh, Intel is a very strong advocate and uh, very supportive of all these kind of technical events, especially my manager himself. Mm -hmm. That he just sent me some notes even I'm here, asked me to enjoy the trip, meet the people. Yeah. Then that that's why I the reason why that I engage so much is because of the company itself that mm -hmm. really supportive for this. Yeah, Bill's talked about an IEEE being a family, um, and I really think community is so important to this industry. He, he is really role modeling, right? Mm -hmm. You can see that he, he really contributed significantly into his um, or more than like, I don't know how many years, right? Mm -hmm. Easy, easily three to four decades, right? In this industry, yes. especially in this society. I, 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 I knew him even about 20 years ago, mm -hmm. right? So that's why he's a really inspiration to us that for us to continue to volunteer and support this society. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank it was you. really great to talk to you, and congratulations on the award. Thank you. It's my honor. So to wrap up this episode of the 3D Insights podcast, where we're recording at ECTC 2023, I invited two of the main organizers of this year's event to sit down and talk about the event itself, some of the changes since last year, and how this event has gone this year. So I'm speaking with Ibrahim Gouvin, who is the general chair this year, and Florian Perot, who is the program chair. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Well, thanks for having me. This has been a great event, as far as I'm concerned, and you guys are responsible for most of it. Yes, I'm the general chair. Uh, Florian is the program chair. So Florian is responsible for the entire program, mm -hmm. putting together technical sessions, uh, special sessions, all the events and how they um, come together. That's so, a big lift. Right? Yeah, it was a pretty long year, but yeah. it came together very nicely. And Ibrahim, as general chair, what did you get to decide? Uh, basically, um, we meet every week mm -hmm. once as an executive committee. Mm -hmm. And Florian and I, we work closely, um, so we decided on all of the changes that were... The executive committee gave you thumbs up? Uh, the executive committee gave, gave us thumbs up. Um, a lot of our uh, members have been through the executive committee in the rotation and stayed. Mm -hmm. So we have about four or five past general chairs that have seen it all. Uh -huh. So they serve as our you know, trusted advisors. Basically. Okay. So yes. if, there's, if there's something that we are wondering, um, we go to them, ask their opinion, they give us their opinions, and then Florian and I, we sit down and talk. As I understand it, this is a seven-year commitment when you get involved with the executive committee. That's correct. You start as an IT coordinator and go all the way to a senior past general chair. To senior past general chair. That's right. So you'll be junior past general chair this year, next year. That's right. And Rosalia will be senior past. And then she just rolls off and goes back to doing whatever she wants to do as far as um, participating. So because this is really a family, like Bill Chen said today. Most of our members stay um, in the technical committee afterwards, mm -hmm. after they finish a seven-year rotation. Yeah, this is a big commitment. And everybody does this as a part-time side hustle with no pay. That's correct. Right. Okay. All volunteers. Volunteer. So all volunteers. So that's a huge commitment. Once a week, uh, plus the homework to do every week, it's, uh, it's a lot of work. And your companies need to support this. Now, Florian, where do you work besides? I actually uh, started my own company about a year ago called Sudolitic um, and uh, co-founder and CTO in okay. Santa Barbara. Okay. Yeah. Doing? Doing uh, developing um, heterogeneous integration technologies for RF uh, chipsets and telecommunications. Okay. And Ibrahim? Uh, um, I'm a professor at Virginia Commonwealth University. Oh. Mechanical and nuclear engineering department. Nuclear engineering. But I do mechanic. mechanical. Uh, mechanical and nuclear. Uh, yeah, I do aerospace and mechanical. Yeah, that's very cool. So let's talk about the event. Yes. What were some of the changes this year that you felt went really well? We made a few changes. Uh, the main change was to move out the uh, luncheon presentations to an 8 a.m. conference-wide session. In the past, uh, most attendees would spread across six technical sessions at 8 a.m. Instead, this year, we brought everybody into the room. Um, we had very good attendance on, on Wednesday, uh, and we kept going through, through the conference. 
because Tuesday was professional development day, right? In addition, with uh, HIR uh, sessions, as well as uh, four technical sessions, four special sessions that we invited uh, speakers and chairs for this. Right, and didn't those used to be the evening plenary sessions? About a year ago, we started to add uh, programs on, on Tuesday. Okay. And this year, the attendance was amazing. It really was. The copper hybrid bonding session was overflowing into the hallway. I just remember there always being these plenary sessions in the evening that started at 7.30 and went till 9. That's correct. And I think that we only had one of those Correct. This On year? Tuesday. That's right. On Tuesday. Okay. Was that also well attended? The Tuesday session was very well attended. The room was full. Uh, people were attentive. Uh, and I think they still had a lot of energy from the first day. Right. Okay. Because I had grown to really dislike those sessions <laughs> just because they were so late and you're going all day. And at that point, you really want to just chill. I think you got a lot more attendance by moving a lot of that to Tuesday, don't you think? Correct. We wanted to really be respectful of our session chairs and our invited speakers who were, you know, coming at 9 p.m. or 8 p.m. but did not have enough attendees. So we decided to move those either on Tuesday or in the morning. I think that was a really great idea. Yeah. You get my seal of approval for that one. Thank, Thank you. you. And what about, this is a new location? Right. We are going into a new nine-year rotation. Uh, we have three venues. Mm -hmm. uh, Orlando, this property is one of them. Um, we have uh, Denver um, next year in 2024. And we have Dallas in 2025. And then we come back here and repeat this uh, two more times, basically. Okay. The next uh, nine years, including this one. Well, I'm so. happy that you're not in Vegas anymore. I'm a little sad we're not in San Diego anymore because that was just a drive for me. So that was good. And I, and I did, although I do understand that we had outgrown San Diego, That's right? Correct. That was correct. part of the issue. Right. We do not like the idea of becoming a convention center conference. Okay. You like being in a... A single hotel that mm -hmm. can handle a large crowd. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that filters out a lot of the properties. Right. Um, so we want large, nice venue, mm -hmm. but single. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where, you know, we have our, you know, a long-time executive committee member who's been, my understanding, is serving uh, with ECTC for about four decades, Patrick Thompson. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he helps us figuring these things out. Right. So, so him, and at the time, whoever was the um, the general chair, program chair, they did a, a number of trips around the country, and they identified you know, these properties and toured them Sounds and came like up a with this. Horrible job. <laughs> <laughs> They get to test them out, jump on the That's beds, right. make sure they're comfortable. <laughs> That's right. You could sign me up for that in my retirement. I will travel around the country and find new locations for you. Sounds Noted. <laughs> uh, I'll, yeah. I'll certainly also give you feedback on my impression of the property because Swan and Dolphin, the last time we were there, it literally rained on me in our room. Oh, I, I, went, I went to bed one night and the, and the water was dripping. And, yeah. and they, you know, so I was very glad that we changed from Swan and Dolphin. So you've got my two thumbs up for this property. I would return here and, uh, and I would also spread the word. So that's what you want, right? And our understanding is if you like this property, you're going to love the Denver and Dallas oh, properties. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. 
Okay, and they are, I guess, the Gaylord properties, I heard. That's correct. And I saw the picture, and it has a really great water slide. Yep. Yeah, so bring, everybody bring your suit. Yep, that's yeah. right. Okay. <laughs> okay, so I guess we'll see you next year then, and uh, it's great to talk to you both. Thank you so very much for having us. So let's do it again And sometime. we'll see you next year. Absolutely. And the next year, and yeah. the next year. Yeah. Thank you, Francis. Okay. Thank you. This is the first in a series of three episodes recorded live at ECTC 2023. On June 16th, we'll be dropping an episode featuring 3D Insights members who attended, presented, or exhibited. They'll share their observations of this year's event and what they were presenting and showcasing. Our June 29th episode will feature conversations on the hot topic of chip-to-wafer hybrid bonding, also recorded at ECTC. And in between, on June 22nd, we'll be dropping a Semicon West preview sponsored by Semi and featuring Tom Sonderman, CEO of Skywater. He'll give us a sneak peek at his CEO Summit keynote, Building the Future, Workforce Development in the Semiconductor Manufacturing Industry. Mark your calendars to tune in and be sure to follow us wherever you get your favorite podcast. There's lots more to come, so tune in next time to the 3D Insights Podcast. The 3D Insights Podcast is a production of 3D Insights, LLC.